Good morning. So we are in Romans chapter 4 today, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses. So I have a number of points. We're going to put up a PowerPoint presentation this morning, and we hope you can follow along with us here. The first is the... Let's see if we can get that up. All right, there we go. Okay. Jesus said... Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The Bible says you should always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. So you should be ready to share the gospel with friends, relatives, co-workers, classmates, and so on. And our attitude about the gospel should be like Paul, like that of Paul, who said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Underscore that word, faith. Okay, That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. In Romans chapter 4, we learn why most people don't go to heaven. This is a key uh, chapter in the book of Romans, and it tells us why most people don't go to heaven. So it's a vital lesson in the gospel this morning. How is a person saved? Do good works save a person? Or is a person saved by faith alone? The thing that separates all true Christians, or all, yeah, all true Christians from others, is the truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I hope you can keep that in mind as we go through uh, this lesson this morning. Meritorious works have absolutely nothing to do with our salvation. And so when you share the gospel with unbelievers, the issue of works-based salvation is the most challenging um, thing to dislodge from a person's mind. It is so uh, instilled in people that they have to do something to earn salvation that it's very difficult to uh, work through that with them. Whether a person is a Jew a Muslim, or even so-called Christians, uh, they will resist this teaching because they have a false view that good works earn salvation. And Satan's strategy uh, is to deceive people into thinking that good works secure their place in heaven. It's just not true. So as we study the first part of Romans 4 uh, today, I want to give you some tools that you can use in witnessing to your unsafe friends and family. And I hope uh, that you'll take this to heart. So as you witness to your family and friends, you'll want to memorize appropriate scriptures to share with them. But there's also key questions that you can memorize that help you to um, analyze um, what a person thinks. There's a, one important diagnostic question that I'll give you right now. If you were to die today, 
and God asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Very important question. Why should I let you into heaven? The answer that a person gives you to that question tells you what they are trusting in for their eternal salvation. The question is an excellent way of uh, getting to the heart of the issue with somebody. And so I want to ask you this morning as well. If you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And so I have some sheets I'm going to ask to be handed out right now. And this is like a little quiz. And um, if you need a pen, there are pens coming around as well. And I want you to just check off on this checklist all the things that you think are necessary to do to be saved. Everything that you need to do to be saved. Some of the things you may say, oh, I don't need to do that. Others you may say, oh, yeah, this is important. I must do this to be saved. So check off the list here. Really, this is um, a list of common answers that people give to the question, why should God let you into heaven? So just take a minute and mark off all the ones that you think are necessary. Trying to keep the Ten Commandments, gifts to charity, doing one's best, leading a good life, good works, trying to obey the golden rule, tithing or giving money to the church, church membership, regular church attendance, prayers, fasting, baptism, holy communion, being born of Christian parents, confirmation, penance, extreme unction. Some of you might not even know what this stuff is. Membership in a lodge or fraternity. What is necessary for your salvation to earn you a place in heaven? So let's start with number one, trying to keep the Ten Commandments. Most people say that. If, uh, if you, you ask them, how do you expect to get to heaven? Oh, I keep the Ten Commandments. You know what my response to them is? Name them. If they can't even name them, how are they keeping them? Name, if it's impossible, it's impossible to keep the Ten Commandments totally, but it's impossible if you don't even know what they are. But James tells us this in James 2.10, For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point. If you break one of the laws one time, you're guilty of the whole thing. So, how are you doing on that one? In answers 2 through 6, uh, these answers um, are all about being good and doing good. And of course, these are admirable goals, but we've already learned from Romans chapters 1 through 3 that there is none good, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So doing good is not good enough. We can't do enough good to get to heaven. Okay, what about number seven? Tithing or giving to the church, giving to charities. Well, those are all honorable things to do. But no amount of money is going to save your soul. 
First Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19 says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There's a song, uh, part of a song that says, if wealth were the way, all earth could not pay the price to redeem a man's soul. There's not enough money in the world. You could, you could have more money than Elon Musk and Bill Gates and uh, what's his name that owns Amazon all together. And it would not be enough to buy your way to heaven. God is not interested in your gold or your silver or your cash. Well, what about Numbers 8 through 18? Well, there are no religious practices that will earn you a place in heaven. For the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, if you marked something down on that paper and said, this is necessary for salvation, I'd like to talk with you afterward, okay? Because if, you've, if you're trusting in something on that sheet, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved by trusting in any of those things for salvation. All right, another uh, thing that you can use in witnessing to others is a scale. Most people, uh, so the question is this, does God use a good works scale to let people into heaven? Almost all people alive believe that God has some giant celestial balancing scale that uh, he uses to determine whether a person uh, will enter heaven or not. Nearly every religion and sect teach this. You will find it in Judaism, Islam, Catholicism, Seventh-day Adventists, Church of Christ, Mormons, JWs, all of them. They all believe that if you put enough works, good works, on the scale, it will outweigh, it will outweigh the um, sin that you've committed. And other religions believe that in an afterlife, how you live in this life determines what, where you're going to be or what you're going to be when you um, live the next life. Essentially, all religions are works-based religions. And so the next question is, can my good works outweigh my sin? When a person says, you ask them the question, why should God let you into heaven? And a person responds this way, he says, well, I hope he will. I hope he will let me into heaven. Because I'm not as bad as, let's say, you know, a murderer. I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler. So, I mean, on the scale of human goodness, I certainly am better than him. And I'm certainly better than murderers or those prisoners or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm just not as bad as the worst person. And so if God's going to let anybody in, you know, on that scale, I'm on the good side of the scale. And God will let my good works outweigh my bad. Or I think God will look at my life and, and he'll say, you know, you, you tried your hardest. You did the best you could. And, uh, you know, you're pretty good. So sure, I'll let you in. And so what they're saying by that is that they are believing in salvation by works. 
They think that their righteousness will outweigh their sin. But the more serious question is, what did you check off on the list? Why should I let you into my heaven? God may ask. What would you say? In Romans 4, Paul turns his attention to the Jews. The Jewish people were certain that they were going to heaven because, after all, they were Abraham's children. They had the law. They circumcised all their male children on the eighth day as a sign that they belonged to God. Surely if any race, if any people would get to heaven, it would be the Jews. The Jews said to Jesus when he was on earth, we have Abraham as our father. Or they also said, we are Abraham's descendants. Abraham is our father. As if Abraham's righteousness simply transferred down the line to them. And Abraham's righteousness and acceptance before God were transferred to the entire nation. Was that true? How did Jesus respond? He said, you are of your father, the devil. Not Abraham, of the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. So let's turn to Romans 4, because he's going to spend some time here talking about Abraham and how Abraham was justified in God's sight and how we too can be justified in his sight. Uh, Romans 4, 1 and two, what then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So the Jews were counting on the fact that Abraham was their father. Was that true? Yeah, he was. He was their father um, as far as him being the founder of the Jewish race. Abraham had a son named Isaac, the promised son. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who became the head of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so every Jew could point back to Abraham and say, we have Abraham as our father. They believed that Abraham was righteous before God because the Bible said that. After all, the Bible says Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous. So the question comes, how did Abraham become righteous before God? Abraham certainly wasn't born righteous. He was born a sinner like you and me. In fact, Abraham was born into idolatry. He was an idolater. He grew up in Ur of the Chaldees, which was an idolatrous nation, and he was part of it when he grew up. So being born into the right family was, was a no-go for Abraham. But God called him out of Ur, but that didn't make him righteous. God made many promises to, made many promises to Abraham, one of which was that God would give Abraham a son. And he said, And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So I want to give a little um, chronology here. Abraham was 75 years old, uh, Genesis 12, verse 4. And it was, that's when he was uh, um, t 
behold that in you or in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And it was not until he was a hundred years old that God gave Abraham his son Isaac. Genesis 21 verse 5. Now in between that, at about 86 years of age, God brought Abraham outside one day and it was night and he said, Abraham, look at the stars. Count them if you can. And if you're able to number them, well, of course, he couldn't number them, but he, God said to him, so shall your descendants be. So this is the story. Abraham's outside at night looking at the stars. God says, your descendants are going to be as many as the stars of the sky. So what did Abraham do to earn his salvation? Nothing. It says in that passage, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. <laughs> you see, that's too simple. It's too easy. And this is the stumbling block that people have when it comes to salvation. They think, no, I've got to do something. Abraham did nothing. Abraham believed God. He believed in God's promise. He believed what God said, and that was good enough. And God says, thank you, Abraham, for believing me. I now declare that you are righteous. Simple as that. So he was justified or accounted righteous by God simply by believing in the Lord. So Paul takes a snapshot of this event. He shows it to the Jewish readers um, in Romans and asks them, how was Abraham made right with God? Was he uh, justified? Was he declared righteous by works? No. If his good work, works made, even if he did good works, even if he did good works, that would not have made him acceptable before God, Paul is saying here. If he did good works and that was the means of heaven, well, then he would be able to boast and say, well, I got here because I did this, 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 and this. Can you imagine heaven filled with people who are boasting about how they got there? Well, I did this. What did you do? Well, I did even more. What did you do? Well, I did even more than both of you. I did this and this and this. That's what got me here. I don't even know why you're here. Okay? Can you imagine the boasting that would take place? But that's not how we get to heaven. Abraham didn't blow his own trumpet and boast before God because it's impossible to earn God's acceptance by good works. The Bible says that salvation is through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And you won't find any proud, arrogant boasters in heaven because Romans 1.32 says of boasters that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Do you know that boasting is worth the death penalty? 2 Timothy 3.2 condemns people in the last days who are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, and boasters. Okay? Boasters have no place in heaven. If you're going to try to get to heaven by your own good works, you're basically saying, God, you owe me this. I'm here in heaven because of what I did. And God will have no place, you'll have no place before God. You cannot get to heaven 
on that basis. No one can. Good works did not justify Abraham. So we have to go back to the truth of God's word. In Romans 4, 3, it says this, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. God declared Abraham righteous based on faith, not works. And God grants righteousness to all who come to him by faith alone. Good works are not part of the equation. Works are not mentioned at all. God credited Abraham with righteousness based on faith in God's promise to him. Well, that takes us to the next point, that your good works, are they of any value at all? Nope. They're of no value. They're of no value when it comes to your salvation. They're of no value when it comes to your place in heaven. Good works are of no value at all. People forget that the Bible says, but we are all like an unclean thing, and our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. If our best works, our good works, are like filthy rags before God, wow, what do our sins look like in his eyes? We can never get to heaven by good works. And we've already seen that in Romans where it says, there is none good, no, not one. So then Paul uses an illustration from employment. Um, how many of you, when you work or when you worked in the past, got a paycheck once a week? Okay, a few of you. All right. How many, was it every two weeks? How about every month? Okay, yeah. So, you know, everybody went to work, and when you went to work, you earned your income. Whether you were hourly or on salary, it doesn't matter. You were working for that income. And when you came to your boss, or however it was, I mean, most of you don't go to your boss to ask for your paycheck. You just get it. And you don't come groveling and say, oh, please, please, let me have my paycheck. You know, you earned it. You deserve it, and so you get it. But Paul says this in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but of debt. Do you know (laughs) that you are putting your boss or your company in debt to you every time you work? You work for 40 hours or whatever length of time you're working. They owe you for that. And it's not that they're saying, oh, well, we're going to be gracious to you. We're going to show you grace this week or this two-week period or this month. We're going to give you grace and give you your paycheck. Seriously? They'd go to court. They'd be put in jail if they didn't. So wages aren't grace. They're debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Basically, it's saying this. You are putting your boss in debt. You are putting him in a position of obligation to you. You can never put God in that obligation. God is no man's debtor. He is not going to be obligated to give you salvation based on what you do. So this is just another argument um, from uh, employment. So God is not our employer. 
He owes us nothing, but he provides everything to those who believe in him. And he declares ungodly sinners righteous before him and worthy of heaven because of their faith in God who justifies them. I think we're behind two. So, as we look at um, the story of Abraham, we see that God justified Abraham by faith alone. And as we look at other characters in the Old Testament, we find the same thing. And so the next illustration that Paul uses is that of David, that God justified King David by faith alone. God promised David that the Messiah would come through his line and that David's throne would endure forever. And so we have to ask the question, if Abraham was justified by faith alone, how was David justified? And we find out that it was by faith alone. So if we look at the case of David or the example of David, God chose David to be king of Israel. David understood and taught that justification is by faith alone. David also knew that, not just theologically in his head, but he knew it experientially. When we consider David's works, would his works, his good works, if we'll call them that, or his works of any kind, outweigh his sins? And I think if we're honest, we would say, no, they wouldn't. For what did David do? David committed adultery with Bathsheba. You say, well, that's enough to, oh, the sin, sin is too much, and uh, the sin is too much, and so my, my good works don't outweigh that. But it was worse than that. Um, she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and when David learned that she was pregnant with his child, he called Uriah home from battle. And he tried to persuade Uriah to have sexual relations with his own wife that night so that it would cover up David's sin. And he would just think, oh, well, this is my child. But he was, a, he was an upright man. He said, I'm not going to have relationship with my wife tonight. When all of my buddies are out in the battlefield suffering, am I going to take pleasure while they're hurting? No. And so he didn't. David even tried to make him drunk so that it would, it would, um, he'd have less inhibitions. But that didn't even uh, cause him to do it. So David said, all right, enough of this. Let's murder him. And he sent him back into battle, told his general to put him on the front line in a position where he knew uh, he would be killed, and then pull back the men from that position so that, in fact, Uriah was killed. David was not only an adulterer, he was a murderer. How on earth would those works earn him a place in heaven? But let me ask you a question. Do you think David is going to be in heaven? You say, yes, I see shaking heads. David will be in heaven. On what basis? On the basis of his works? No. No murder is going to be in heaven. You know, that's crazy. There is no way David's good works will ever outweigh the heinous, heinous, I can't even say it right, heinous sins he committed against Bathsheba, Uriah, and against God. So Nathan 
the prophet came to David one day, uh, it was about a year later, and uh, he confronted David about his sin. And when David heard, um, was, was, was confronted about his sin, his conscience slew him. And he got on his face before God. And we read his repentance in Psalm 51. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, he says. In faith, David confesses his sins and he asks God to forgive him based on God's mercy and loving kindness. That was the faith of David, that God would, in fact, forgive his sins and save him. He admits that his works were evil in God's sight, but he asked God to cleanse him, to blot out his iniquities, and to create a clean heart in him. And he believed God would justify him according to his faith. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And we see that David was justified by the answer that Nathan gave to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. How did David, be, how was David accepted before God? By faith. That's it. There was no works involved here. In fact, his works would have kept him out of heaven altogether. David wrote in Psalm 32, and that is what Paul quotes from here in Romans chapter 4. And in it, David says that he is, that, that the happy man, the happy man or the happy woman is the sinner whom God declares righteous apart from works. And so let's look at the joy a believer has being justified by God apart from works. In verses 6 through 8, Paul writes, just as David also describes the blessedness that means the joy, the happiness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. You know, we live a hard, miserable sinful life. We do. If even our righteousness is as filthy rags, then we are miserable people. The Bible tells us that we are storing up for ourselves God's wrath because of our sin. The Bible tells us that God will, in flaming fire, take vengeance on those that do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we stopped and we just thought about it for a few minutes, we would be terrified. We would be depressed. And we would be hopeless. There is no way we could do enough good works to get out of our mess. And even if we did good works, God would not accept them because by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. Simple as that. So what do we do? Faith is the answer to all of this. Faith. And it is faith in someone and the work they did for us. 
It is faith in Christ's finished work that makes our work unnecessary. God provided a better way, didn't he? He sent his son to die in our place, and he paid the punishment we deserve for our sins. He calls on us simply to believe in him and be saved. Do you remember what the Philippian jailer, he cried out to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And when we do, he makes us eternally happy because he forgives our lawless deeds. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west and he does not impute sin to our account. Praise the Lord. That makes us happy people. Pay it in full. So there is no balancing scale. That whole idea that people have, you have got to undermine that, dislodge it from their brains, get rid of it, because it doesn't apply in the scripture at all. There is no such thing as a balancing scale. Okay? There is only one thing that will save you, and that is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid our debt in full. Faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ is everything. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. That means that God declares us righteous when we simply believe, just like Abraham believed, just like David believed. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's a wonderful thing that when you trust alone in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, the Bible declares, therefore there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know the joy of having your sins forgiven? Can you say, I have joy in my heart because God put my sins out of his sight? Do you experience the joy of having your sin record cleared before God? All of your sin. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter the thoughts you've had, the actions you've committed. God will forgive it all if you simply come to him in faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, Paul is writing to a mixed crowd, and there are going to be objections to what he said, and he's likely to get objections from the Jews. So that's our next uh, point. The Jewish person may object and say, well, just a minute. Okay, I'm hearing what you're saying, but David was a Jew, and he was writing to Jews and describing the joy that comes to Jews. And Abraham was a Jew. In fact, he was the father of the Jewish nation. We are God's chosen people. God made a covenant with our father Abraham and gave him the covenant sign, which is circumcision. We follow the law and circumcise our boys when they're eight days old. God told Abraham that circumcision shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. We are the circumcised. You are Gentiles. You were the uncircumcised. You know, the Jews actually used to look down, in fact, they probably still do, look down their theological nose 
um, at the Gentiles. And they even gave Gentiles uh, or, or called Gentiles a derogatory term. When they said you are uncircumcised, that's a derogatory term. So do you remember the story of David when he went to battle with Goliath? David was watching this giant come out from the, from the Philistines and mocking the people of God and mocking God and how he was going to gain the victory. And he basically um, threw out a, 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 a threat to them and said, look, send me a man and fight with, to fight with me. And if I win, we'll be your slave. If, if I win, you'll be our slaves. But if you win, we'll be your slaves. I mean, basically, he was just mocking them. And David, a young shepherd boy at the time, he's watching this and he's going, what is going on here? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That term, who is this uncircumcised Philistine, is a derogatory term. He's now mocking Goliath. But the Jews would mock the Gentiles the same way. You're just the uncircumcised. You know how people do it today. I can't do my hair flip. My hair flip. <laughs> Was it the act of circumcision that made Abraham righteous? Or was it his faith? And is the blessedness that David talked about of sins forgiven available to the Jew only? or also to Gentiles? And this is the question that Paul addresses next. It's interesting. I love the way he argues uh, in this passage. Can Gentiles be justified? And to answer that question, he goes back to Father Abraham, the father of the Jews. And he's saying, let's, let's talk about Abraham. Let's go back to his case and see from his case whether Gentiles can be justified or not. So in verses 9 and 10, he says this, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, to the Jews only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised? or uncircumcised? And then Paul gives the answer. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. That may be a little confusing to listen to, but Paul is going back to the historical record or the historical event of when Abraham was justified. You remember, God took Abraham out one night, looked at the stars, said, your descendants will be like the stars of the sky, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That happened um, when Abraham was still a Gentile. Oh, that changes everything. Abraham was not circumcised at that point. He did not have the covenant sign in his body. He was still on Gentile ground. Abraham believed God when he was still on Gentile ground, shall we say. Then years later, Abraham was circumcised. In fact, it says this in Genesis 17, 24. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, which means he was justified as a Gentile. 
If God justified Abraham as a Gentile, then God can justify all Gentiles um, on the same basis as Abraham. The door is wide open for the Gentiles to be justified by faith, just as Abraham, entirely apart from works, just as Abraham. Now, Abraham was eventually circumcised, but that was after his justification. God had already declared him righteous. Circumcision was then simply an outward sign that Abraham had already been justified by faith, entirely apart from works. You know, it's interesting, on that sheet that I handed out, there are some, some uh, items on there, including baptism, and there are churches that believe you must be baptized to be saved. I go back to this same passage when I talk to people about baptism. It's the same thing. You are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. Baptism follows later, could be the same day, but it usually follows later, and it is a sign of what has already trans, transpired in your life, that you have already trusted in Christ by faith. And so a person can be justified before God, whether they are Jew or Gentile, whether they are circumcised or not, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. It's interesting, Paul uh, spends a lot of time in the book of Galatians on this very issue. And uh, in, in Galatians 2, 15 and 16, he says, we who are by, sorry, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. It's, it's, it's a great argument. Paul is saying, look, as Jews, we know that the law cannot save. We know that Abraham was saved by faith, and if he as a Gentile is saved by faith, then we know we too as Jews can be saved on the same basis. So he actually flips the argument entirely, turns it on its head, and he's saying, yeah, the Jews can also be saved that way. <laughs> Instead of saying, hey, we are the people of God and we are going to get in no matter what, he's saying, no, we need to come to the Lord on the exact same basis as the Gentiles, by faith. So let me ask you again, check your paper. What things did you check off on that paper? If you have been trusting on anything on that paper, you're trusting in the wrong thing for salvation. You cannot be saved by doing your own good works. You must come to God as a helpless sinner in need of salvation. And salvation is, as I said, by grace alone. God gives this to you undeservedly. We don't deserve it. Through faith alone. We have faith entirely apart from works in Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the object of of our faith in his person and his work on the cross, we place our trust and he saves us and declares us righteous just as he did for Abraham and for David. If you have been trusting in your own works for salvation, this morning I ask you to abandon that completely. Put it aside, throw it away and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone 
for your salvation, for there is no other way to heaven. Go back to the question that we asked at the beginning. If you were to die today and God asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? I hope it's not anything to do with your own good works. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Are you trusting in him and in him alone for your salvation? If not, I urge you to trust in him alone today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made salvation so easy for us. We thank you that although it cost you everything to die in our place, to suffer what we deserved for our sin, yet you have made the process of entering heaven so simple for us that even a child can come and believe on you. Lord, we pray that if there are any listening today or here today that do not know you, that they will abandon all hope in themselves, all hope in their own works for salvation, and trust entirely on the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers because of his work on the cross for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.